and welcome to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. I'm John Tanza on this live broadcast from Washington. Here are some of the top stories making news across Sudan and South Sudan this Wednesday, February 14, 2024. A Canadian, median wa- a Canadian media watchdog is preparing South Sudanese to tackle misinformation and hate speech. During in addition to working with journalists, the aim of this project is also to empower civil society organizations with fact-checking tools and skills. And the French medical charity Doctors Without Borders say Sudan is at the verge of facing acute starvation. Now the situation is of course very difficult for that uh, population. It's uh, a major economic crisis that is uh, also happening. It's very difficult to make a living in Sudan. People rely on uh, money that could be sent from uh, their friends abroad or uh, or in the uh, very few uh, safe cities. We'll have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. Canadian media development organization called Journalists for Human Rights is working with local partners in South Sudan to fight hate speech and misinformation. The head of the group says her office aims to tackle misinformation and disinformation as South Sudan prepares for elections scheduled for December 2024. For VOA News, Juliana Shapai reports from Juba. Journalists for Human Rights and the Juba-based Defy Hate Now, with support from the Global Affairs Canada Peace Stabilization Operation Program, launched the initiative to combat misinformation in Juba today. Mary Ajith, program manager of the group, says the project also aims to foster increased access to information and strengthen dialogue on peace, security, human rights and governance across South Sudan. We would train journalists to fact-check and, re- and report news professionally and ethically. In addition to working with journalists, the aim of this project is also to empower civil society organizations with fact-checking tools and skills to integrate them into their civic education and community engagement. By doing so, we hope to impact journalists and civil society organizations and also produce media literacy content for general members of the public. Patrick Oyed, president of the Union of Journalists in South Sudan, says the project comes just in time as journalists prepare to cover the scheduled December 2024 election. Uh, we believe that this project is very important. Uh, we have already been discussing something with um, Defy Hate now. We believe that this project is going to really help our colleagues, ourselves, journalists, as we prepare for elections. The question of whether or not elections will happen in December is a political question that we have no answer for. But as journalists, as technical people, we must prepare. We must prepare, we must be ready, and we must make sure that we pass accurate information to the public. Irene Ayer, 
Executive Director of the Association for Media Development in South Sudan says her office stands ready to support the training of journalists for the upcoming election. She says the media environment in South Sudan is in need of serious reforms and wants that the country's restrictive media environment could prevent media outlets from sending accurate information to South Sudanese during the election season without the help of journalists for human rights. I also want to Jaychara, uh, if possible, to also factor in the issue of uh, freedom of expression advocacy, which is really, really very important. The media is a cornerstone for democracy. And uh, now that we are planning for election, uh, we need uh, the media to do their work without interference. I know Jaychara has a very long-standing relationship with media, authority and uh, the Ministry of Information, I would like that kind of partnership to continue so that uh, the media environment uh, is looked after and uh, we expect uh, a a more free uh, media environment. Ali Khan, the Canadian ambassador to South Sudan, says the Kira administration receives huge financial support from Canada and his government stands ready to offer more support for training South Sudanese journalists to prepare for the elections. It is a particularly um, important time for the media sector to be strong, to be coordinated, and to be able to do its jobs effectively, but also for all of us to work together to combat mis- and disinformation because it affects everybody. It affects people that are running in elections, the people that are actually running the election, the supporters, the voters, the journalists, everybody. So at the end of the day, this is not an issue for journalists to tackle or for the government to only tackle. It is one we have to do together. Some South Sudanese analysts, diplomats, civil society and church leaders have been calling for the completion of of a new permanent constitutional framework, voters registration, trained security forces and a mechanism for resolving disputes over results of the elections. The director for corporate affairs at the South Sudan government-owned National Communication Authority says the government will support the journalists for human rights by providing improved connectivity across the country. Margaret Labanya, Speaking on behalf of the Communication Authority, says the government connects the country via mobile phone services to help streamline the work of journalists. We are here to promote and regulate the communication sector. Whatsoever you're doing will be supported by what National Communication Authority regulates. But above all, we must ensure availability all connectivity, the services must not be interrupted anyhow, should also be very good, allow you all to communicate in the right way. Journalist for Human Rights says the success of its new project depends on the strong partnership between the media sector and the relevant institutions in South Sudan. For VOA News, I'm Juliana Shiapai in Juba. From Juba, we move to Khartoum, where Sudan's 10-month-old conflict has claimed thousands of lives, with half of Sudan's population, about 25 million people, needing humanitarian assistance. For the latest humanitarian assessment in Sudan, VOA's Esther Gitui Ewad spoke with Jean-Guy Vatou, MSF's head of mission in Sudan. Well, uh, most of the territory of Sudan has been hit by this uh, recent war that started in uh, April last year. Uh, Out of 45 million inhabitants, 7 million have been displaced, 
some of them going to foreign to uh, neighboring countries most of them staying into sudan and part of them being displaced several times uh, from one place to another uh, fleeing uh, the, the the fighting now the situation is of course very difficult for that uh, population it's uh, a major economic crisis that is uh, also happening it's very difficult to make a living in sudan people rely on the uh, money that could be sent from uh, their friends abroad or uh, or in the uh, very few uh, safe cities left uh, in sudan and uh, the, the situation uh, we had seen deteriorate for the past uh, weeks in msf uh, health structures we wanted to measure it uh, made a, a mortality and nutrition survey in uh, North Darfur, in a camp called Zamzam, a very big uh, displaced camp. Uh, and the results are uh, uh, more than alarming. They are already catastrophic. The mortality rates are uh, three times the emergency threshold, that is six times the normal mortality you should see in that camp. The, the malnutrition is huge. 40% of women uh, lactating or pregnant uh, are malnourished. For children, it's 25%. Mm -hmm. One quarter of children have acute malnutrition, among them 7% severe. Severe malnutrition, that means that those children, right. if they don't receive food and treatment, will die in the coming weeks. So a catastrophic situation, really. So what are MSF's key priorities when it comes to taking care of those issues that you mentioned, especially uh, to improve the health conditions of the children in that country and the women you mentioned here that are pregnant, lactating, and others really are suffering because there's no medication, as that's what we hear. No, you're right. Uh, drugs is uh, uh, very difficult to come by in uh, Sudan. Uh, MSF is running projects in, in 10 states. We're doing hospitals mostly. Uh, and of course, we will step up the uh, malnutrition programs uh, in direction of those children that are malnourished. But that's, that's not going to be enough. That's even maybe not going to work at all if there is not a major effort made on food distribution, general food distribution uh, for this uh, vulnerable population who could be as much as uh, uh, 10 million people uh, in need of uh, food distribution, water, and of right. course, to allow all this, the right. protection of this population. That's Jean-Guy Votou, head of MSF in Sudan. He was speaking with my colleague Esther Githi Ewat on Tuesday. Millions of Zimbabweans grapple with food insecurity, but the World Food Program and its partners say they have been making strides in helping the vulnerable. Reporter Jose Zenvashi in Harare has details. Francesca Edelman, the World Food Program Zimbabwe representative and country director, says the situation is improving but remains critical. According to the Zimbabwe Livelihoods Assessment Committee, the ZIMLAC, which assesses the nation's food and nutrition security, 26% of the rural population, that is 2.7 million people, are projected to be cereal insecure during the current peak lean season from January to March. This dropped from 38% in the 2022-2023 season, but remains a very high number of people who need assistance. She says the WFP is providing aid to thousands of Zimbabweans in some of the most affected areas. WFP is currently supporting the food deficit mitigation strategy with food assistance in four districts in Zimbabwe, supporting some 265,000 people. We have mapped out areas where people require food assistance. We've identified households and individuals in need, and we registered them to receive support. 
Our teams are currently on the ground working with our NGO partners World Vision, Caritas and the Munezi Development Training Center in Buhera, Mangwe, Chivi and Munezi to deliver the support. On Tuesday, the government of Japan donated $1.36 million to complement the WFP's efforts. According to the WFP, the donation will benefit 40,000 vulnerable Zimbabweans. Some parts of the urban population are also vulnerable to food insecurity and WFP has been making cash disbursements to those most affected. To help build sustainability, the efforts have been complemented by resilience building and income earning opportunities. Zimbabwe has been experiencing some rains, but Edelman remains cautious. The rain is welcome and necessary, especially for our farming communities which rely heavily on rainwater for their crops to succeed. However, what's important is when the rain comes and whether it comes in the right quantities. We're currently experiencing an El Nino phenomenon, which typically means that there is irregular rainfall for crops to thrive. We don't have the data yet on the impact of the weather during this farming season, so it's difficult to predict what sort of harvest we will have, but this will become more apparent in the coming weeks. We are worried, though, that the harvest may not be adequate to meet the needs of many rural households. Matthias Speit is the country director for World Hunger Healthy Zimbabwe, an international aid group from Germany that focuses on resilience building. We have been uh, working hand-in-hand with government extension teams in the promotion of practices that reduce the risk of crop and livestock losses. And this has included helping mainstream conservation agricultural practices. A good small grain harvest are anticipated in Gokwe, both in north and south of the region, despite El Nino. Households that needed the encouragement to grow small grains will surely be food secure until the next season. That is at least what we anticipate. Zimbabwe is in the lean season, which usually begins in October and ends in March. That's when crops aren't yet ready for harvest, but food stores from the previous year are getting low. For VOA, this is Kudzai Shinawashi from Harare, Zimbabwe. You are listening to South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Coming up, artificial intelligence is changing how we do business. Are you ready for it? Find out more after the break. Hello, listener of South Sudan in Focus. We have an exciting new segment dubbed Words of Wisdom. We want to hear your thoughtful proverbs that echo through your community. This is another chance for you to share wisdom from your roots. All you need to do is record a proverb in a language of your choice, tell us its English translation and what it means. Keep it brief, authentic, and represent your community. Your recorded proverb shall be sampled on South Sudan in Focus every Wednesday. Send your recording via our WhatsApp number, plus one, two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. That is plus one, two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. You are listening to South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Our words of wisdom for today comes from Central Equatorial State. 
I'm Robert Wane from South Sudan in capital Juba. My proverb is in Bari language, which says, Lele ngoto baen, lokon jujukin, nyokunje, kingajen kanyet, itolipudian, madikonje gokonan, tu korean, kode tumatan. In English, which says, no one can reverse his or her age to childhood, no matter what wealth or position he or she may have. Thank you so much. And you have heard that you cannot reverse your age. I wish I could reverse mine. You are listening to South Sudan in focus from the voice of America. With wars raging in Europe and the Middle East, the spectator of a clash between China and Taiwan, which could draw the U.S. into a new conflict, is of global concern. But an ocean away in South Africa which has seen different waves of immigration by ethnic Chinese over centuries, there is unity, not division. Katie Butler reports from the Chinese New Year celebrations near Johannesburg. Thousands of people turned out at a Taiwanese Buddhist temple outside of Johannesburg to usher in the Chinese calendar's Year of the Dragon. The Taiwan-based Buddhist order called Foguang Shan built this temple, but the divisions between Taiwan and China are nowhere to be seen during this Lunar New Year celebration. Erwin Pan is a fourth-generation Chinese South African and chairman of the Chinese Association in South Africa's Gauteng province. I think the one unifying factor here for many of the Chinese that come from all around the world, whether it was Taiwan, China, Hong Kong, local Chinese, it's really, they have the common common ground of being here in South Africa. And so it's actually become very, very united. Many Chinese migrants came to South Africa in the late 1800s and early 1900s because of Johannesburg's gold rush. Then in the 1980s and 90s, Taiwanese came and set up textile and garment factories. More people from mainland China migrated to South Africa when Beijing opened its doors to the world in the early 2000s. They kept coming as part of Chinese President Xi Jinping's 2013 Global Infrastructure Policy, the Belt and Road Initiative. There is no official census data, but Pan says there are some 10,000 local Chinese South Africans. He says that number goes up to an estimated 200,000 to 300,000 when including expatriate Chinese and business people temporarily in the country. Daniel Lee, born in South Africa, has parents from Taiwan. It's Chinese New Year. There's no segregation between mainland and Taiwanese. It's all a, it's a cultural thing which we share the same culture of. Howard Su was also born in South Africa to parents from China's Fujian province. Su says there may be tensions between China and Taiwan, but religion can transcend that. The politics is definitely a very tough question to answer. But what's incredible is... Uh, religion, Buddhism, has brought everyone together and is, is in despite of their race, in, in despite of their like politics, you know, um, everyone is like a big family here. This Taiwanese temple's local drum and dance troupe even performed for China's president when he paid a state visit to South Africa last year, says performer Simangale Chaoke. So Xi Jinping said to us, uh, where, did, where did, we like, did we learn Chinese drum? Do you understand? And then we told him, and then he said, uh, this uh, drumming, Chinese drumming is used to celebrate, like, events or anything like that. Or when they have, back, back in the days, when they had war, they used to play the drums. Some people worry the drums of war might once again be starting up, especially after a presidential candidate not preferred by China won Taiwan's elections last month. 
but tens of thousands of kilometers away in South Africa, distance and time have brought harmony among the children of the people from mainland China and Taiwan. Kate Bartlett for VA News, Broncos Spruit, South Africa. Still in Southern Africa, a California-based company backed by tech billionaires says it has discovered major copper deposits in Zambia using artificial intelligence. The discovery comes as demand for metal is especially high for the global transition from cleaner energy sources. Katie Short reports from Lusaka, Zambia. Located in Zambia's mineral-rich Copper Belt province, the Mingomba Copper Project is poised to become one of the biggest and highest-grade copper mines in the world. Cobalt Metals Africa CEO Fikei Makai told VOA that the company and its partner Zambia Consolidated Copper Mines Investments Holdings have been working on the Mingomba project for the last 12 months using artificial intelligence to search for copper, cobalt, nickel and lithium. We have found something that's really great. It's larger than 5% copper, consistent, good quality ore body and we're really excited for Zambia. We're excited for the region and the industry as well because we now know that innovation is required in exploration for the future. Investors in cobalt metals include Jeff Bezos, founder of online shopping giant Amazon and Breakthrough Energy, a climate and technology fund established by Microsoft founder Bill Gates. U.S. Ambassador to Zambia, Michael Gonzalez, described the discovery as phenomenal, saying it will be one of Zambia's and the region's biggest copper deposits discovered in decades. He says the project has demonstrated how artificial intelligence has become invaluable in the discovery of minerals. Gonzalez adds that this is just the latest and biggest component of a long-term partnership between the United States and Zambia. When you think of mining, you don't think of Silicon Valley. When you think of America, though, you often think about innovation. And this is where the Silicon Valley element comes into play, in that you have a company of data analysts who are looking at the data that's available about mining and mineral deposits in Zambia, crunching big data and using that to project where to explore. President Hakainde Hichilama's chief communication aide, Clayson Hamasaka, said the discovery is in line with the president's vision for Zambia to increase copper production. This is quite a huge development for Zambia, for the Zambian citizens, and for what we are envisaging as a, as a country. Remember when we came, we came on the platform of increasing the, 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 our, our, our mineral you know, extraction to about, to about 3 million tons in the next 10 years or so. Experts say the rare discovery of a high-grade copper deposit will help in the global effort to secure the materials needed for the ongoing transition to cleaner sources of energy. Copper is in high demand due to its use in renewable energy and electric vehicles. Meanwhile, Cobalt CEO predicts the mine, when it becomes operational in about seven years, will directly generate 15,000 jobs and indirectly generate an additional 5,000 jobs. That will be welcome news to the people of Zambia 
the majority of whom live in poverty despite the country's rich mineral deposits. Kathy Short, VOA News, Lusaka. Zambia. From Zambia, we go to West Africa, where after years of focus on oil and gas, Nigerian authorities are taking a new look at the mining industry as part of their drive to diversify the economy. But the country is still reeling from environmental damage caused by old mining operations and the illegal mining that continues. Timothy Obiezu reports from Lagos. Phoebe Gang has been illegally digging for three years to find one of central Nigeria's most precious minerals, tin. This is one side out of many in Plateau State where thousands of locals are trying to make quick cash by mining. Gang says she makes about $15 a week and it's worth all the risk. If government don't want us to do it, then let's provide something for us. Let's provide food or job for us. Because we cannot just follow our hand like that and be watching. When found, the tin is washed and separated from the sand. It is then weighed, bought, smelted and sold to larger companies for use primarily in electronics. Nigeria has rich deposits of more than 40 different minerals, according to the country's geological survey agency, and the government wants to increase its mining operations. But farmer Emmanuel Simon says he's still suffering from mines that used to operate in the region. Since we were kids, they started tin mining in our village and our farmland has been destroyed. We no longer farm in those areas and even if we did, we won't get any harvest no matter how much fertilizer we applied. We won't get anything. The wells created by the digging are often not covered and sometimes turn into large gullies that make farming impossible. Abandoned mining ponds also pose danger to locals, especially children. Between September and October last year, more than 30 people died in mining sites in the area, according to the Plateau Indigenous Miners Association. But authorities like Peter Worm, Plateau State's Commissioner for Environment, Climate Change and Mineral Development say the country wants to take advantage of the demand for Nigerian minerals. There's been a resurgence of mining again in, um, globally, not just here on the plateau. Um, demand globally has spiked due to um, these particular minerals used to build um, you know, um, the new things that we use in the world today, especially our, our you know, computers, phones, vehicles, uh, batteries, and so on. And that's why we see it. it's almost like a gold rush. Um, so many people are coming here. Guam says any new mining licenses will come with agreements to minimize environmental damage and create value by ensuring companies set up processing facilities here in Nigeria. Authorities are also trying to bring the illegally operating small miners back under the rule of law. The government is looking at, you know, we don't want to address them anymore as illegal miners. We're looking at them as artisanal miners and we're bunching them into cooperatives and giving them the needed uh, tools for them to be able to uh, mine in a safe uh, manner. In the meantime, people like Gyang say they will continue their illegal search for tin and the money to keep their families housed and fed. Timothy Obiezu, VOA News, Joss, Plateau State, Nigeria. And that's all we prepared for you this Wednesday, February 14, 2024. We now leave you with Vivian singing in her native Shuluk language.
Listening to Vivian singing in her native Shiluk language, the Shiluk are found in Upper Nile State. I'm your host, John Tanza, on this live broadcast from Studio 14 here in Washington. On behalf of our producer Kwame Ofori and engineer Bill Bass, we wish you a lovely evening and remember to join us tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Yippee! Yippee!